The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. guys, welcome back to the Tragedy Cinema Podcast. I'm your host, Jimbo. And I'm your co-host, Kyle. Kyle, today we'll be talking about the 1987 horror classic, Hellraiser. Yay! Motorhead. Love it. Motorhead. <laughs> that one music really? video. It's good. <laughs> but before we get started, Kyle, mm-hmm. where would you rank Pinhead in the list of horror icons? Oh, You um, know Freddy and Jason and Chucky and Michael. Oh, gosh. I think I... Jigsaw. <laughs> <laughs> pretty fast fair now you know just the, the ultimate horror icons the the ones made in the last 10 years you know yeah yeah um he's probably top five for me right in like uh gosh i probably put michael myers on first i'm gonna have to do this i'm gonna do a ranking just to put it there well, freddie cougar on second then michael then i'd then probably Freddy. put pinhead at three then Chuck, you're gonna confuse everyone's order for years. <laughs> Let's just list off our names we like together in unison, and then let the community put it together for us. <laughs> but the yeah, I put um, uh, <laughs> Michael, then Freddie, and then actually I might put no. I'm thinking put Jason at three, and then probably four would be Pinheads. So that puts Pinhead right at the top four for me. So it's probably where he stands there. And then the rest of the rankings I couldn't know was like maybe Chucky, and then like. 
the rest to be go would be kind of like guessing. Um, do you think? I'm curious, just because he's had multiple different people playing that the killer's role, but how do you feel about Ghostface from Scream series? Do you think that he places a horror movie sure. icon that I kind of way? So. Yeah, yeah. There's some rumors that he's going to be added to the next call, the, 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 the current Mortal Kombat game. He's going to get added to the Mortal oh Kombat game. Goodness. And I'm like, how? He, he's just a guy. <laughs> he's just a guy. Or a girl. Yeah, or, or a girl with a knife. Yeah, oh, that sometimes too. both at the same, same time. Yeah, same time both. But that's next episode. <laughs> we'll talk about that. When we finally get around to covering the Scream franchise in earnest. We, yeah. well, we have done the Scream franchise. And earnest. Ernest goes to the Scream okay, franchise. Okay, well, now that you've totally derailed this episode, I'm, I actually you, given you, you uh, questions. You asked the question. Exactly. Uh, yes, Kyle, let's go ahead and take away this episode. All right. Hellraiser, released on September 11th in 1987. The film follows a woman who discovers that a newly resurrected, partially formed body of her brother-in-law, and she starts killing for him, and killing for him to revitalize his body so he can escape the demonic, de- de- demonic beings that are pursuing him after he escaped their sadistic underworld. That was her brother-in-law? Yeah. That was her brother-in-law, who was also her ex-lover. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll get into like, the deeper parts of the plot, but this movie is messed up. I, I would put this movie on the same level playing field as Event Horizon. There's just so much going on. It's just... Definitely a lot of the same inspirations, and definitely like the most dark and... like kind of erotic horror almost that kind of goes into this kind of film yeah. making um, and, and this is kind of like this is kind of Glyve Barker's genre like he cast the entire shadow on this whole genre of horror that he kind of engineered in many ways you know and I told you I said Kyle let's cover this because I want to see what the big fuss is because I've only caught bits and pieces I knew who Pinhead was but I wanted to know does he deserve to be up there in the same uh, talks with Freddie and Michael and Jason and after watching just the first one I have to say no Really? Right, because, I, number one, they don't even call him Pinhead in this movie. He's just known as the lead cinema. In the first Friday 13th, you know, it's not even Jason isn't the main baddie. But you know his name's Jason, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But still, there's plenty of movies. <laughs> okay, okay, Jim. Continue on. We, <laughs> Pinhead is a, is a horror icon. Um, but uh, anyways, this movie is directed and written by Clive Barker, um, produced by Christopher Figg, composed by Christopher Young, Cinematographer Ry Robert Vigian. Budget of the film was just nine hundred thousand USD, actually one million euros. But I looked at the conversion rates for nineteen eighty seven to this one, came down to nine hundred thousand USD. And just for inflation, that'd be about two point four million dollars today USD. I'm going to put that USD going forward. <laughs> so uh, very cheaply made, and especially signing for like the actual visual effects they accomplished in this one. Like you'd have to guess, like the majority of the film went towards those. Pretty impressive visual effects for the film. Yeah. Um, pretty crazy stuff, to, especially like the chains going out everywhere, the makeup work they put on all the, the cinebites. The, the box. Well, the box itself is probably a complicated but thing. But the moving of the box. The moving yeah. of the box is pretty impressive. I imagine they did that with like reverse footage. It's just a, a lot Rubik's Cube. Of, and, and, and a lot of that stop, and a lot of the um, the um, the conjuring of the bodies was like just melting wax figures, then filming it in reverse so they could just record the bodies like rising up like like melted wax. Really effective filmmaking techniques. Um, but anyways, going forward here, we also have opening weekend and made $4.45 million. Just for inflation, be at $12 million. This movie was kind of like an immediate return on investment really well in that case. And then um, gross worldwide and through, well, U.S. and Canada and gross worldwide are very similar because this film um, was a very hard R for the time. And many theaters just straight up didn't allow it after several cuts to several different scenes. Kind of similar to Event Horizon where Event Horizon, those scenes got lost. 
Um, a lot of Hellraiser stuff has been, you know, maintained to a degree. Um, but this film just like was just on that line of just like uh, specifically because how much how kind of sexually explicit the nature of Clive Barker's film work is. It kind of explicit the roles of like between R-rated and adults-only content. Um, so it kind of makes it hard to get these films in theaters to a degree. Um, but still, gross worldwide and gross in just U.S. Are kind of similar at like 14.5 and uh, 14.64 million and then 14.57 million. So a difference of $10,000 literally. Uh, just for inflation though, that'd come out to about $39.5 million though. So literally just, you know, um, you know, less than $3 million in investment, um, for the initial film and a nearly $40 million return. Huge turn on investment for this first film. Definitely a big success for them on that front, too. No wonder this film has received like eight sequels or ten, depending on how you count things, including that, not including that um, new Hulu movie that I haven't seen yet, or that TV series they're producing now on HBO Max. Incredible stuff. So, big legacy on that front. Um, let's see here. Let's move on to some of the, the awards of the film. Just a couple of awards. We have a nomination in 2010 from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films for the best. DVD collection as part of the Hellraiser box set. And I think 2010, so that would have like all nine movies at the time. And for the 1988 um, Ivory's Fantastic Film Festival, it won the Fear Section Awards to Clive Barker. Um, then in 1988, it was also had the Fanta Sporta nomination for Best Film, and it won the Critics Award for Clive Barker's Choice as well. And that concludes a little award section right there. Some of the de- technical details of the film. This film has a runtime of only 94 minutes, so that's a pretty sort of like, you know, short but sweet kind of deal. And keep that 90-minute work. It's good for horror movies. I agree. Do you do you like the 90-minute movies? Or do you wish they were longer? Um, do you think it's too short? Or do you think it's just enough time to get in and get out? I think it's just enough time to get in and get out. Um, I think there's the place for like like, you either want to be like just under three hours or you want to be 90 minutes. Being in between that feels... Feels like you should choose one or the other in, in all scenarios for me. I never feel like I live a two-hour movie feeling like that was just the right amount of time. It's either like ninety minutes where I can just like I can sit down, get it done, and I get everything I need, like the highlights of everything I need to know about the plot real quick. Or you have that nearly three-hour movie that feels like it lingers on a lot of things and like gets a lot done. Um, going in between that feels bad. It's like it's like a revert. It's like an anti-Goldilocks zone for me. Where if you have you know longer than ninety minutes or shorter than three, you know, or you know that much shorter than three hours, it's bad. Yeah, so I like nine movies in that kind of situation. How do you feel about it? Um, it depends on the movie, I think. That um, truly, sometimes yeah. two hours is fine. Um, it yeah. just depends on the genre of the movie, and you know, yeah. something like this is fine just to get in there, set the story, and get out. Um, yeah. But then you know, you go to something like Avengers Endgame when it's like three hours and twenty minutes, or Lord of the Rings, even yeah, three hours. I think cuts especially. I think it, yeah, I think. That is, you watch those movies and, and time just yeah stands still. I would think like when you're in a case where like you're a two-hour movie or like a 250 minute movie, like there should be at a moment where an editor was coming in, it's like you need to kill your darlings to make a better film. Because I feel like the 90-minute movie is just enough to get like a punch in the face of just like this is what the movie is and this is what it stands for and this is why you enjoy it. But I also I think like that. when you're under the time crunch of the 90-minute movie that some important scenes can be left out and make plot holes. It's true. That's it's what true. I, it's a delicate balance. I'm right. not going to like it, it, it's not the barometer of good or bad for sure, but it is like a nice little factor right thinking like if you're around the 90 minute mark, I think that's a really good like a punch in the face of just like this is the movie that you want to see and here's the best parts of it. I think it's great. And then if you're a three movie, it allows you to like inhabit that space and feel the world more um versus like is anywhere in between those kind of time factors feels like 
Yeah, it should have been one of the other. Well, even guys, some of those old know. Universal monster movies that were right at sixty or sixty-five minutes. You know, I mean, they were just barely over an hour. Yeah, yeah, and I so, feel like those were a little too short. Like, so. I wish I had a few more minutes of those characters because right. I wish they could have brought their darlings back a little bit. But that's we're getting off track a little bit, so we'll be back on here. Um, so yeah, runtime ninety-four minutes. Um, actually, cut down to eighty-nine minutes in Sweden and eighty-six minutes in Finland for cutting down explicit parts because <laughs> like, movie goes the out hip there. Thrust. <laughs> um, sound mix movie has a full sound mix of Dolby stereo. So good, good sound mix on that front. Color film, obviously, for 1987. I sure hope so. Aspect ratio is 1.85 by 1. Very standard there. Cameras use a standard Panavision Panaflex Platinum and the Panavision Ultra Speed Mark II lenses. Laboratory facility was actually the Technicolor facility in the London, UK. And negative format, this was a 35mm film um, when the, on the Fuji AX500T8514 film stock. And process was spherical and printed format was, of course, 35 millimeters in that front as well. Um, in fact, I don't have the release details of when this actually came to America, but I have the United Kingdom release date of September 11th, 1987. And then um, later, uh, and also they had a re-release of the film in 2015 on August 30th for the film for Fright Fest. Interesting fun fact there. So moving on, we're going to go to the cast here, and we have a rather um, uh, I, I got the, uh, an impressively large cast actually for how small the film overall is. Like there's a few characters, but like you know, it allows me to kind of focus on almost every character in the whole film. So um, first up, I'm just going to go straight to Doug Bradley playing the role of lead Cenobite in this film. This is actually before he actually got the name Pinhead. He actually doesn't get the name Pinhead, I think, till the third episode. The third. Uh, yeah, and it's because like, he plays a villain like he doesn't doesn't need a name to be frightening, you know. And actually, the original name of the Pinhead sake, I believe, it's supposed to be like rumored to have been like that was like an onset nickname for his right. prop, basically like that of calling him Pinhead. But in reality, like his name largely just kind of like. He doesn't need a name. He's just the leader of the Cenobites. That's what he is. So he doesn't... You know, he goes beyond a name, basically, which is pretty cool. Um, Dig Proudly, you know, now known as Brent Head, of course, appeared in nine of the Hellraiser films between 1987 and 2005. He also appeared in a few other films, such as uh, Back Fort in 2019 and a bunch of other little smaller roles in films as well. And he was also in the Motorhead music video um, Hellraiser back in, like, 1980. Nine, I want to say, but I don't remember the exact year that music video came out. Yeah, so that was a fun little throwback kind of thing there too. Where it's like he has the name, <laughs> oh, it should be the thing. Um, then we're going to move on to the actual um, the other characters of the film. Um, we have Andrew Robinson playing the role of Larry. Um, Andrew Robinson is playing the the father role, Larry, right there. Um, Andrew was also in the um, the film um, Dirty Harry as the main antagonist, the killer Andy Robinson in the okay. film right there too. So that's probably the most recognizable place you've seen him outside of this film. And then um, in the case of heavy prosthetic and makeup, he was also in the role of Garrick in the star in the show Star Trek Deep Space Nine really? between 1993 and he 1991. Was in there, but I didn't remember. And he probably was in probably more than 100 episodes now. Um, actually, there is a new book actually that he narrates where he actually reprises his role as Garrick from Deep Space Nine and. It's about him going most of the show. I've been meaning to listen to it. I haven't got around to it yet, but there's a new book. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll look up the name while recording the podcast, <laughs> and I'll share it with you because I, I, I want to get that book so bad. <laughs> I need to get around to it. Um, but, yeah, so those are the two probably um, other biggest roles outside of this movie right here that he's played in. And a uh, really, really great actor overall. So great work there, especially Derek's an awesome character in Deep Space Nine. Love that. That's, probably, that's my favorite Star Trek show. <laughs> What's yours, Jimbo? Favorite Star Trek character? Yeah, favorite Star Trek show. Um... You know, a lot of people say uh, inter- uh, the next generation. Yeah. For me, um, I think it's always been Voyager. 
Um, because that was actually on, you know, in my height of my nerdism, you know. I think Voyager is the most fun show. But I honestly, I'm going back and I'm actually enjoying watching Enterprise, the uh, Scott Bakula. That's really well done. You can never go wrong with Scott Bakula. He's great. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, um, interesting role there, too. And, uh, okay, next up we have uh, Claire Higgins playing the role of Julia. Claire Higgins was also in the film um, Ready Player One in 2018, where she played the role as Mrs. Gilmore, um, one of the smaller roles in that thing. And she was also in the television show The Worst Witch from 2017 to 2020. She just looks like a witch. <laughs> Creepy she, she has that menacing smile, just yeah. like it just pierced right through, like she's going to eat your heart immediately. She looks like a Cenobite without any makeup. <laughs> it's... it's, 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 it's it's an impressive amount of like how frightening she can be with just her face. You know, she like, like a not, wicked, not that she's ugly or anything like, like that. A she's she's, she's mother perfectly or beautiful, but yeah, she just she can wear the veneer of evil so easily. It's a really impressive. Um, so that's really cool on her. Um, also, another fun fact, another smaller fact, like a lot of these actors, like they appear in a lot of smaller roles for a few films. So like it's gonna be hard to see like how many like multi roles they have noted. So like it's gonna be a little bit out there right here. So next up we have like Ashley Lawrence playing the role of Christy, who appeared again as a role in Hellbound and Hellbound. Hellraiser 2 in 1988, and was also a voice in the um, video game The Vanishing of Ethan Carter, released in 2014. When that game came around, I felt like, I'm going to get around to it someday, and then I just realized, like, oh gosh, it's nine years old, and I have never <laughs> played it. And you'll forget about it by the time this is over. Exactly, I'll never get around to playing it, but it's, like, it's, it's how time flies, right? Back in my head, like, I should get around to that sometime, then nine years go by, and it's like, oh, I never listened to that thing. Um, anyways, moving on. Next up, we have Sean Chapman playing the role of Frank, the uh, the kind of a, uh, the real antagonist of the film. Who were to the main, you know, the guy who actually gets the puzzle box, opens it up, and then you know proceeds to be locked in the attic for uh, weeks, I believe. Yeah, so Frank, right there. Um, so Sean Chapman was also in the film The A Mighty Heart in two thousand seven, and the film The Fourth Protocol in nineteen eighty seven. Next up, we have Oliver Smith playing the role of Frank as the monster, actually. Kind of like the initial like crawling scenes where he's crawling on the attic floor and saying, I'm Frank! <laughs> I'm a corpse, basically. Um, Oliver Smith um, also, once again, reprised his role as playing the, the monster kind of, you know, uh, gooey flesh monster of himself in Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Um, he was also in the film The First Great Train Robbery in 1978. And the, um, the I believe it was actually it was a directed like TV movie or it was like a TV show of the, the of the kind of like a Passion of the Christ story, but Jesus of Nazareth in 1977. I haven't watched any one of those. That's good. Good. Um, yep, yeah, so he was also in those programs as well. Next up, we have Robert Hines playing the role of Steve. I believe uh, Steve was the boyfriend of the daughter if I remember correctly mm-hmm. and Robert Hines was also in some of the films such as Frankenstein in 1994 and Weatherby in 1985 next up we have Anthony Allen playing the role of the first victim that um, Julia kills <laughs> Anthony Allen was also in the film Chicago Cab in 1997 and Slade in Fame in 1975 what is, what is the title Slade in Fame yeah, and then next we have Leon Davis playing the second victim. He was in the film Little Little, Little Dorrit in 1987 and Chico the Rainmaker in 1974. Once again, just great title, Chico the Rainmaker. Chico. Go to your theaters now, kids. See Chico the Rainmaker. Watch it be like an amazing film. I just never took around. <laughs> next up we have Frank Baker playing the role of Derelict. 
Frank Baker uh, of the, the Derelict, and Frank Baker was also in the film The Secret Guardian in 1993. I believe actually Derelict was the um, kind of like the the bum eating the peanuts, and that the end turns into a dragon, <laughs> the the bone dragon, or whoever yeah. was that takes the puzzle box. Um, then we have Kenneth Nelson playing the role of Bill. Kenneth Nelson was also in the film The Boys in the Band in 1970, and then that concludes our cast list for the film. Have you? Hellraiser. Did you talk about any of the other Cenobites? Oh, right. I did skip over the Cenobites. You're right. Sorry. Um, we have Nicholas Vince playing the role of the chattering Cenobite. <laughs> you know, I see that one, and it just reminds me of them fake teeth you can get and wind up in like the... Exactly. Like you would just wind him up. He was awesome in the film They're Outside in 2020 and The Book of Monsters in 2018. I bet that was probably a documentary about his role, probably. Next up, we have Simon Baffert playing the role of the Butterball Cenobite. The Kyle Cenobite, if you will. He asked me which my favorite Cenobite was, and I said definitely Butterball, because he looks the most ridiculous of the three. Like, <laughs> really he does. poses no threat. He's the Butterball. He's just a sweet little boy. <laughs> you just pat him on the head. Yeah, you're a Butterball. And he's got sunglasses. I know. He's got he sunglasses. Me. He's ridiculous. He's just a melted little, like, he's a thumb of a man. <laughs> Um, Simon Bamford was also in the film Starfish in 2016 Book of Blood in 2009 and Nightbreed in 1990 and then finally we have Grace Kirby playing the role of the female Cenobite Grace Kirby was also in the film Lena Brooke in 1979 thanks Jim for catching me I almost skipped those entirely yeah but Grace Kirby too playing the, the female Cenobite no name there yeah so cool facts on that front but that concludes the cast of Hellraiser Jimbo. Are you ready? Go ahead, Jimbo. I'm Are ready for you. Are you ready? Are all you right. ready? So, Kyle, we all know that Doug Bradley paid the lead Cenobite, otherwise known as Pinhead. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm going to use him as pin, uh, Pinhead instead of Cenobite. Uh, just real quick about the, the Andrew Robinson, um, who played Garrick in um, Star Trek, uh, uh, Deep, Deep Space Nine. Um, the film, the, the book is called A Stitch in Time. It was written by Andrew J. Robinson. And Andrew Robinson narrates the book. Um, he wrote the book and he's narrating the book sorry he's also narrating the book on Audible as well as the role of Garrick so really cool there love it Um, (laughs) and you know instead of Cinnabites I'm going to start calling them Cinnabons 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 Cinnabons. but it took six hours to apply the makeup to Pinhead absolutely miserable six six hours and then then you go to work right Uh, actually Doug Bradley's uh, character was not named Pinhead it was actually named Priest in the earliest drafts of the script and also became simply lead Cenobite in the shooting script. Pinhead originated as a nickname for the character. It stuck and began being used in the sequels. Director Clive Barker actually disliked this name, finding it undignified. And in his Hellraiser comic series produced the in Boom or for Boom in 2011, had characters refer to Pinhead as Priest. He also maintains that the character has a true Cenobite name that he intends to reveal in a forthcoming work. Oh. Similarly, the female Cenobite uh, was designated as Deep Throat on the set, though the overtly sexual nature of the moniker led her to simply being billed as the female Cenobite again in the sequel. Yeah, that would be... (laughs) Wow. Ty Parker's messed up, dude. So anyway. He he goes there. I appreciate it. He's got no restrictions. (laughs) Uh, This was actually based on the novella uh, The The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. Um, the studio decided the title sounded too much like a romance and asked Clyde Barker to change it. Barker offered 
sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave, <laughs> which was rejected for the overall uh, overtly sexual uh, content. He ultimately opened the floor to the production team to offer up their own suggestions, prompting a 60-year-old female crew member to offer up the suggestion, what a woman will do for a good fill in the blank. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some really crazy trivia here. So, yeah. industrial band Coil originally did the soundtrack. Clyde Barker was a fan of the finished product, saying, Coil was the only group I've heard on disc whose records I've taken off because they made my bowels churn. <laughs> However, the studio ultimately decided to have the film rescore uh, by a house band that would not have to be paid royalty. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so yeah. thanks a lot. Remember, this movie was on the cheap. <laughs> Uh, Doug Bradley was uh, originally offered a choice of roles between one of the mattress movers and the lead Cenobite. He narrowly turned down the lead Cenobite role as he uh, originally thought it was uh, important that as a new film actor, the audience should see his face. Oh, So yeah. he could have been the mattress guy. Could have been the mattress guy. The one, so, the I one, think he chose he, wisely. He got beer, and that would be, that would be, <laughs> that would be his whole memory of just uh, of Doug Bradley right there, of intending to be the lead Cenobite and then had a role that lasted for... 30 years. Doug Bradley known as the mattress guy. <laughs> the mattress guy. Do you know the that, mattress that guy? That would have been the, the funnier alternate universe mattress. guy if that he became the iconic character of the Hellraiser series. The mattress the guy. The mattress guy. He's here. Yet, no one cares about him. Oh, no, not again. <laughs> Uh, in his DVD commentary, uh, Clive Barker explained that filming the movie in an actual house forced him to be creative in his cinematography. There was often only room for a single camera, and this explains why many of the shots are from uh, only one particular angle. Uh, the most challenging part was the vertical movement was only uh, was often the only movement uh, available to the camera operators, which explains many of the overhead and zoom-in shots. Only one room in the house, the attic, was shot on a soundstage, but uh, only the FX shots uh, used this attic set. I think that really works for the film, too, because it adds like a sense of claustrophobia to the entire thing. Like, the amount of times you're just so tight on someone's face watching the film, too. Like, it just makes you feel, like, just un uneasy, which is really well, too. I think it's good for the film. Right. Uh, many viewers have commented about the poor quality of the FX at the end of the movie. Clive Barker has explained that, due to a very limited budget... There was no money left to have the FX done professionally after the primary filming. Instead, ready for this, Kyle? Yeah. Barker and a, quote, Greek guy animated <laughs> these scenes by hand over a single weekend. A single weekend. Barker had also commented that he thinks the FX turned out very well considering the amount of alcohol the two consumed that weekend. <laughs> I'll admit that's... Yeah, yeah. When you factor in how they did it, that's really impressive. It One is. weekend while With drunk. Two of them? Yeah, just going on a bender or a weekend and making the, the ending scene there. Yeah. And I'll uh, think it's very poor quality. Right. At around 47 minutes, the scene where Frank is being spun around upside down, covered in blood, was a camera test and the very first thing shot of the film. Afterwards, uh, Sean Chapman, who played Frank, couldn't help from vomiting. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I bet. Uh, the concept of a cube being used as a portal to hell has its basis in the urban legend of the Devil's Toy Box, which concerns a uh, six-sided cube constructed of inward-facing mirrors. According to legend, individuals who enter the structures are then close, uh, and then close it will undergo surreal, disturbed phenomenon that will simultaneously grant them a revelatory experience and permanently warp their mind. 
You were kind of saying, like, similarly, too, like, this film, like, evokes a lot of, like, you know, Event Horizon, too. Like, Event Horizon, the whole problem set was, like, they made a, you know, a transwarp, you know, engine, but it turns out it just took them straight to hell. Right. <laughs> Same thing here. Like, you know, Hellraiser is just, like, discovering a box that takes you straight to hell. You know, it's all about just finding a portal to hell. It's a very similar kind of plot development in that one sense. Yeah, right it kind of reminds me of uh, Jafar. Uh, phenomenal cosmic power. It's a clever narrative technique because it, just, it allows you to conjure anything you want at any moment there. It's like anything can come out of the box at any time. You know, and there's a lot of, you know, that great monster in the hallway there. Just yeah, well, I don't know what that thing was, but it's, um, it's messed up. I know that much. <laughs> the studio had planned on casting stuntmen as the Cenobites. Uh, Cenobites, sorry. Cenobons. Yeah, Cenobons. <laughs> uh, to save on production costs, director Clyde Barker, however, insists on hiring actors, reasoning that even if the characters did not speak and appeared under heavy makeup, their body language would still convey a personality, which I have to agree. Yeah. Uh, the Chatterer and the Butterball Cenobites had dialogue in the original script. However, when their makeup made coherent speech impossible, their lines were given to the female Cenobite, and especially Pinhead, which helped to cement his reputation as the film's trademark character. Uh, Sean Chapman's entire dialogue was dubbed by another actor. Yep. Uh, did I write that one down? I don't think I did. Uh, no, I didn't write that one down. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, when Doug Bradley first donned the pinhead makeup, he spent a few minutes alone in his room getting into character by looking at himself in the mirror. Uh, the earliest incantation of Pinhead appeared in The Hunters in the Snow, an original 1973 play with Doug Bradley in the title role of The Dutchman, an undead inquisitor and torturer. A later film titled The Forbidden, which was shot in 16mm and in black and white, included a prop in the form of a wooden block which, with six nails in it, which gave distorted shadow formations under different lighting angles. Years later, during the scripting of Hellraiser, the same design would be applied to Pinhead's face to give him the same effect. Kyle, do you think this would have worked in black and white? Um, you think they could have got away with more than what they did if it was in black and white? Kind of like, remember yeah, Kill yeah. Bill where they did the shadow thing and then... Yeah, the, the shadow thing. Is like they, yeah. So, um, yeah, probably, actually. It probably would have been... Uh, yeah, it... I think we'll probably have a, even like a more interesting legacy if it did a black and white version right. of this one. I would be, I'd be curious to see it actually. I bet they could good. probably still do it and probably still it probably the, the effects would look even stronger. Turn off in the black color on your TV when you go home. Kyle, I've done that before. It, right. I've done that for a few, few films. It's pretty fun. Uh, during production, Doug Bradley had trouble hitting his marks during his takes in makeup as he couldn't see through the black contact lenses and was afraid of tripping over pinhead skirts. <laughs> Can you imagine falling and piercing your eye with one of them? I bet they just bend off or break off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, special effects of the unnamed creature known as the engineer in the novel proved difficult as the creature was difficult to maneuver. And I think that's that creature. Created in the hallway, about, right? I believe, yeah. Uh, Clive Barker drew inspiration for the Cinnabons, uh, designed from punk fashion, uh, Catholicism, and by the visits he took to S&M clubs in New York and Amsterdam. So. <laughs> For the sake of research, right? Well, like Clive Barker was a very outspoken homosexual in the eighties, so like you know, like he made no qualms about who he was and what he did, and that's what he wrote. So it's like, okay, he knew a lot. Uh, For Pinhead specifically, Barker drew inspiration from African fetish sculptures. Initially, Barker intended Pinhead to have a navel piercing, implying that the character had genital piercings. Barker's original uh, Hell Priest, if you will, sketches for Pinhead were eventually adapted into an officially licensed mask by Composite Effects to be released in limited quantity to the public on March 24th, 2017. Oh, wow. This was done in the celebration of the 30th anniversary of Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, because of his eventual skill at application and removal of the pinhead appliances and costume, Doug Bradley had or has been create, credited in some of the Hellraiser film as an assistant makeup artist. Yeah. He's like six hours, no mo, no mo, no mo, six hours. Like, I'm gonna figure this out. Yeah, <laughs> Forty minutes, baby, we're here. Um, Slap dash, put the sprinkles on. Here's some glue. Good. <laughs> Kyle's favorite butterball, uh, Simon Barnf- uh, Bamford, uh, met Clyde Barker through a friend who was doing prop work for Barker's plays. Bamford and Barker became friends and joined his theater company. After the company disbanded, Bamford contacted Barker to see what he was doing, and Barker invited him to do Hellraiser. Uh, Bamford wore a fat suit and a foam latex mask. He was uh, sorry. He, he was designed to look as if he would be impossible for him to eat anything else. <laughs> like my co-host Kyle every week. Uh, oh his, tor- his torn open stomach was meant to give the impression that he could directly interact with his organs at will. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, let's... I'm hungry. Let's put a little bit more to the side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To me, he always look, he looks like a melted candle to me almost. Like he it looks, does. Like he just looks like a melted flesh on top of himself. Like he's just been exposed to all the world. Kind of reminds me of Pizza the Hut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spaceballs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the female Cenobite was inspired by scarification and body piercing in National Geographic articles. The makeup took three hours to apply, causing her discomfort and prevented Grace Kirby from sitting. When Kirby refused to return, Barbie Wilde took over the role. Wilde speculated that the producers were interested in her because of her background in mime, which was commonly believed in the industry to help with performing under prosthetic uh, makeup. That sound, seems like a sound logic to me. I would say that's true, probably. But I wonder if they reshot all those scenes with her. Oh, that's a good question. I, 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 well, they didn't, have, they didn't include the original actress in the cast role, so I bet they probably did. You know, because they, if they, they had the original Grace actress, Kirby, like the first they, didn't, scene, they didn't say anything. You no, know, they didn't mention it. Just, yeah, just Grace Kirby as being the initial role, so. Just being the only role. Yeah, but so know. so this lady took over for oh, her. Oh, so. okay, so I don't know. So Barbie Wilde. So. Yeah, hmm. uh, when Clive Barker uh, first showed the film to his mother, she cried tears of joy upon seeing her son's name in the opening credits. <laughs> he leaned over and whispered, that would be the happiest she would be for the next two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, mean, I can see why. <laughs> the term Cenobite is a word meaning a member of a communal religious order. The Hellbound Heart specifies that they are members of the Order of the Gash. The text also refers to them as Hierophants. Lament Configuration, infamously known as the Six-Sided Box, was conceived and designed by Simon Sacy. Not Simon Says, Simon Sacy. Simon Sacy. At around one hour and eight minutes, although Butterball says no more than a few hissing noises, he was originally going to say the female Cenobite's line, Perhaps we prefer you. In the original script, because of all the work done to the Cenobite's face, he could not say anything, so the line was given away. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine an ideal scenario. Like, if there was a digital model, how you would animate his face moving, it would never make sense to me. Looking that face kind of tried to contort to make noises. All that thing could do is scream. So, so Kirsty, who was, was that the daughter? Yes, Kirsty was the daughter. Uh, Jennifer Tilly auditioned for that role. Oh wow, she went in great for that role. Uh, here you go, Kyle. The website Mr. Skin posted the top 10 horror series with the most female nude scenes uh, on, as of on October 2020. <laughs> List includes, here we go, these are the series, okay, so that means all the movies combined. Uh-huh. Witchcraft, 77. Friday the 13th, 49. Hellraiser, 24. Wrong Turn, 17. Piranha, 16. Hostel, 14. Silent Night, Deadly Night, 14. Halloween, 14. And Amityville, 9. Mm. So it's Horror Mix Top 10. Good for them. (laughs) 
Initial reviews range from Melody Maker calling it the greatest horror film made in Britain to Roger Ebert decrying its, quote, bankruptcy of imagination. <laughs> we love the Roger Ebert in this podcast. Roger Ebert, He's just, I swear. Man. Uh, The shot of Larry's blood seeping unnaturally through the floor was a simple reverse shot of a red fluid being pumped up through the uh, rigged nail holes in the floorboard. Uh, The false floor uh, allowed for the establishing downward pan revealing the pulsing heart-like mass. This embryo, if you will, was designed by John Cormican. And as Keane relays to Heather A. Wixton in her book Monster Squad... The effect was, quote, made out of a condom, a piece of tubing, some glue, and some bits and pieces to pull the whole thing together to make it look like a real human organ. Impressive work, too. So we're really, like, using, like, all well, condoms basically. You don't usually just cheap intestines anyways. So. And here we go to continue that. According to the crew, the backbone of special effect was, in fact, lube and condoms, which, given the erotic nature of the film, is quite fitting. The crew actively sought out condoms because they were made out of latex. Lube made things look like look and stay wet under the camera lights. According to the crew, they were mortified whenever they had to make a run to a shop to load up on what surely looked like the king's ransom of orgy supplies. <laughs> need the whole box. What? Okay. Sir, we need a pallet of those. Pallet of that. Yeah. I need a barrel of lube. What? <laughs> At the wrap-up party, uh, Doug Bradley was almost refused entry because nobody recognized him without the pinhead makeup applied to his... hilarious. Hilarious. A scene where Pinhead rises above Kirsty was achieved by Doug Bradley standing on the end of a seesaw, and the crew uh, then counterbalanced the other end to cause him to rise above Ashley Lawrence. Hmm. Funny. Uh, Grace Kirby, who played the female Cenobite, is the cousin of Clive Barker. Oh, fun. How do you like that? Oh, you, oh, you can't stand so well. I'm replacing you, cousin. <laughs> uh, yeah. And here's some spoilers. Uh, the Clyde Barker had to make some cuts on the film after the MPA gave it an X rating. Uh, here they are. Two and a half shots were uh, excised from the first hammer murder, including a close-up of the hammer lodging into the victim's head. Oh, gosh. Uh, in the scene where Julia murders another man, the actor playing the victim felt that it made sense for him to do so naked. The nude murder scene was shot but ultimately replaced with a semi-cloth version uh, close-ups of Christy sticking her hand into Frank's belly, exposing his guts. Longer version of the scene where Frank is being torn into pieces by the Cenobite hooks, which not much more you could do there. He got pretty much destroyed. Everything you do, yeah. And the final shot where the head explodes and his brain uh, and his brain messily splashes out was also cut. And that's something I will say. When he was going through his transformation, as he kept killing in the blood, was transforming. He looked really good, especially with like his brain and stuff. Oh, where yeah, yeah. really like he awesome constantly like he just was just gonna fall into a pile of mush at any given moment. Yeah, but you I know, mean, and achieving that with like real prosthetics is looked amazing. really good. Yeah, uh, the name Pinhead was coined by the makeup crew that applied the prosthetics to Doug Bradley to distinguish the Cenobites. Clyde Barker has said no in choosing Pinhead as a name and did not like it, as though it was thought it was undignified. As I said earlier, the first time he was known is was in. The third, third Razor movie. movie. Yeah. So, Kyle, thoughts, ratings, feelings. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I understand having a pretty popular legacy now. I, I feel like actually, I really appreciate the film overall. It's probably not something I'm like I'm looking for all the time. <laughs> it's definitely it's it's a, it's a it's an acquired taste, I would say. Um, trying to especially that kind of erotic horror genre. Really, just like I'm. <laughs> 
almost never in the mood for that kind of thing. You know, um, I've, I've read a couple of Clyde Barker's books. I believe the, the great and secret show and Everville read those books and there's really interesting stuff going on there, but also like equally dark and like kind of like horror and that kind of erotic tinge nature that Clyde Barker is so well known for. And I kind of, I appreciate this being a unique piece of genre fiction and uh, kind of like a genre unto itself, Clark Barker's work. So I really appreciate that and this film. So I appreciate that legacy, but as the film stands itself, it's not something I'm going to come back to anytime soon. I'm happy I watched it once. This is probably a, like a six out of ten for me overall. Of just like just above average. Of just like like I'm happy I watched it, but I'm not going to go back to it anytime soon. Just because it doesn't hold up for me in that kind of situation. Um, practical effects are really appreciative too. It's one of those things where I think if you're a fan of this genre and specifically this kind of genre, um, subgenre if you will, then like you'll definitely be all there for it and good for you on that. But it's not going to be my thing. Not, I'm not going to think about it that much after this. I might go back and watch some of the sequels later on down the line if I ever decide we want to cover on the podcast or just personally I want to just I just want to know. Um, um, but besides that, it's not like that memorable in that scenario. So yeah, six out of ten for me. It's okay, but um, yeah, it's not like the best thing ever. So that's how I kind of feel about it. Jimbo, how do you feel about this film? Yeah, well, I'm probably actually it's crazy to say, but I, I think I'm going to agree with you with the six. Um, and I think that's just for the special effects. The, the the way that they made Frank as he was transforming the, all those times was outstanding. Yeah, um, you could see like the blood and the muscles and the goo. every time like it, he looks like a carcass that moves. It's would, really impressive. It really and every is. time you know he would keep you know. getting better and better. Um, I did want to bring out that there was two quotes from Pinhead I thought were pretty pretty good. One was "Ah, the suffering, the sweet sweet suffering." Yeah. But probably the one I liked the most was when he's like, "No tears, please. It's a waste of a good suffering." I was like, "Really strong lines in there too." Um, yeah. yeah um, I think with the way and the limited amount of uh, the cinematography that he could do with the camera work, I think he did fine. Um, the 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 special effects, practical effects. Uh, for the most part, um, top notch. I, I love yeah. them. I yeah. love practical effects. I like it better than CGI. It just looks so much better to me. Um, does he deserve to be in the top five horror icons? Um, after just watching this one movie, I'd say no. Um, <laughs> but you know who he is. Yeah. So you just need to know yeah. the story. Oh. So because you see him, you know, oh, that's Pinhead. Yeah. Even one, I knew it was Pinhead, and I had never watched this. One piece of trivia we didn't get to in the notes there, right there. I remember, like, um, for the longest time, they were trying when they were, you know, took so many years to finally make that Freddy versus Krueger movie, uh, the Freddy versus Jason movie. When they, when they finally make it, one of the last, um, the last um, twist endings I wanted to have was Freddy Krueger finding themselves uh, right at the dock of the of the lake, and then my. Pinhead was supposed to rise from the water and then be like, do we need to solve this debate, gentlemen, or something like that, too? Are you two having an argument? And that was going to be their final act twist, but it was like almost impossible to get the rights just for Jason Freddy to appear in the same movie, let alone get Pinhead to appear. You, but that would have been an amazing... Like, can you imagine if they ever come out with a movie with all the horror icons in it, like Michael, Freddy, Jason, Chucky, Jigsaw, yeah. uh, Pinhead, yeah. all of them? Uh, kind of like you know, you go see a Godzilla movie, and you know you got Mothra, Godzilla, Ghidra, Chidra. Yeah. Uh, the, the fan community made a really, really excellent fighting game, and they've they've people have pushed to make a real, like fully fledged, like triple A fighting game with all the horror movie icons. Um, but um, the reality of that is probably the closest one we ever get is probably the Dead by Daylight video game series, which I've never been a personally a big fan of, but I know a lot of people are huge on that game. But that has. That has, you know, Pinhead, Jason Voorhees, has basically all the horror movie icons in it already at this point. And Nicolas Cage. <laughs> oh, well. So that's probably as close as we get to, like, a real, like, horror anthology video game almost. 
Um, that's really impressive there. But I would love to see a film that did kind of take these characters and go into that that weird fantastical like it's not even a horror movie at that point just because all these characters are heroes in their own right and that kind of point too like if they all had to band together to save the world to keep exactly exactly we gotta murder people like, that, that's would be like all these horror movie icons <laughs> finally killing all of humanity and somehow that being the thing we're all here and for they're just all sitting around a campfire be like now why you know? yeah, exactly exactly there's nobody for Freddy to go in yeah, the dream, yeah, so he yeah, just yeah. kind of vanishes. Yeah, yeah. Or also, like, they had that. Um, there was one character in Cabin in the Woods that was basically a direct inspiration from him. I think it was like like a sawhead guy in the Cabin in the Woods movie. Um, but yeah, I would love to see movies like that someday. And I don't know if we ever will, but who knows? You know, right. the future making hold anything. Um, but yeah, but I think um, we're dropping up to a close. What do you think? Yeah. So um, if you want to follow us on the social medias, don't forget. And just about a little over, well, let's see, release this next week. A little over two weeks, uh, October twenty eighth. Yeah. We will be on... Or a week after next, actually. So about one week from here, yeah, from yeah. when we post this. I know we're all recording this right, a second right, before right, we post right. it. Well, this will be dropping like on October 18th, which is my birthday. Yeah. Uh, so um, you think this one was, was... I was rough on this one. Wait till next week's uh, episode <laughs> because we will be covering the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And let me tell you... Um, we have strong opinions on yes, the matter. I have very strong opinions. It might be the worst movie I ever saw, so I'll give you that little I mean, that's teaser. <laughs> I'll give you that little teaser. So with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut.